Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. weirdos it's us steph and andrew that was cute we didn't even rehearse that we didn't that was just spur of the moment that was really cool (laughs) well we are back as always excited to be here hope you all are having a good day while you're listening to this wherever you listen um where do you listen to podcasts my love usually in the car yeah me too yeah but also like when i'm washing dishes yeah or folding laundry like the boring tasks exactly i know it's so cool to think that we get to accompany people on their commutes or while they do their boring chores i know it feels really nice yeah it feels special it feels very special well i know that andrew has a really great episode planned for us today and it's to round out the celebration of black history month Um, And just before we get into his episode, I did want to share a little bit about the history of Black History Month, because I was reflecting on it, and I was like, wait, I don't know how this started. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never really thought about it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So the information that I have for us today is mainly just from history.com. And again, I know we get some folks that listen from outside of the U.S., so I'll just summarize this by saying Black History Month is an annual celebration, the month of February, to recognize the achievements of African Americans and their central role in US history and culture. Um, It's also sometimes known as African American History Month. And this celebration has a actually really cool little origin story. Oh, cool. The story of Black History Month starts in 1915, which is half a century after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Carver G. Woodson and this very prominent minister, Jesse E. Moreland, were celebrating that um, anniversary together, I think, in Chicago with other friends, and they were all reflecting, and I don't know. I I picture them, like, celebrating and drinking and having a good time. Mm -hmm. And these two men came up with the idea to found um, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, an organization dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by black Americans and other peoples of African descent. Today, this organization still exists. Oh. It's known as the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. I've never even heard of them. I know. And they sponsored what was then called uh, National Negro History Week in 1926. And they chose the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Hey. Isn't that cool? So that's why it's in February. That's why it's in February. Ah, uh, okay. Their event inspired schools and communities nationwide to start organizing local celebrations. And even like clubs and lecture series started happening all around the country. Oh, very cool. And then, of course, during the 1960s here in the U.S., we had the Civil Rights Movement, and this week-long celebration just started to gain more traction and popularity, and it started expanding beyond the week. 
And then finally, President Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month in 1976. So this was like a long time that's, coming. Yeah, that's over half a century. Yes. Calling, and then he said he was calling upon the public to, quote, seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. And I just thought that was a really cool little, like, side history, history podcast <laughs> note to share with mini-sode. you all. It was a little mini-sode. little mini-sode at the beginning, because I truly... Uh, We've talked about this before. Our education system isn't the greatest. No, <laughs> and it's I, not. I truly did not know any of this. I didn't know a single bit of that, to be honest with you. Yeah, so I just wanted to share that information that I found before you jump in to your super cool episode for this week. Well, thank you. Of course. Now tell us, what are you going to tell us about? Well, I actually wanted to talk about Japanese history, but Perfect. I swear... <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it actually... It makes sense. It'll make sense in about 30 seconds. So I want to talk about specifically one of the most legendary samurai in Japanese history. And what's interesting, though, is, is this samurai mm-hmm. was actually not Japanese himself. In fact, he wasn't even from Asia. And today we will be speaking about the 16th century six foot two samurai from Africa, Yasuke, the first foreign samurai in Japanese history. Oh my god, that's perfect. <laughs> I know, right? Isn't it amazing? So yeah, this guy, it's this. It's, by the way, yeah, he was around in the 16th century, so the 1500s. Samurai had been around since either the the late 9th century or early 10th century. I think the 9th century, yeah. so 800s yeah. AD. F- 15, and we're talking about the 1500s. So and that's he's the first foreign one. In 700 years. Wow, because it's a very... I remember actually learning a little bit about samurai in school, and it's it was something that was always also very spiritual. Yes. In combination with being very honorific, very prestigious, it was also very spiritual. Right. So I could see why that would be a weird position to give to a foreigner. It would be. Yeah, you have to be really enmeshed with the culture. And, oh my god, I'm really excited to learn about Yasuke. Yes. And it's interesting. We don't have a lot of documentation on him. Okay. But it's just really funny that, of course, we have documentation that he was tall. Six <laughs> foot two. Like, or approximately 1.88 meters. That means nothing to me. I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I read that and I was like, that means literally nothing to me. But yeah, six <laughs> foot two. That um, is very tall. Yeah, so very tall, especially for the 1500s. Yeah, he would have definitely stood out. Yeah. Uh, of course, we, you know, when we talk about a legendary figure like this, there has to be parts of his life that is just a complete mystery. And that's the case here, unfortunately. That tends to happen on History for Weirdos. It does. But we'll take it. We like a little mystery. <laughs> we do, don't we? So his early life and even early adulthood is just a complete mystery to this day. Oh, we don't know like exactly where he grew up or anything? We don't even know what his birth name was let alone where he grew up. Oh my gosh. But best guess is that at one point he went by the name Yasuf. But mm-hmm. then again, it's just an educated theory. So again, we don't know where he was from. Best guess is from Mozambique, mm-hmm. which is most likely where he's from. But also some other possibilities are South Sudan and Ethiopia. But again, all this is still up for the t- debate. Wow, that's really interesting. I know. But regardless uh, of how 
you know, of how he was brought up or his up or, you know, his origins, really, we know that he arrived in Japan in 1579. Wow. So that is known for certain. He was actually in the service of a Jesuit priest by the what? name of Alessandro Valignano. 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 There we go. Valignano. Wow, a Jesuit priest is hanging out with this guy who becomes a samurai. Yes. This sounds like one of those like super cheesy like dad jokes, like a priest and a samurai <laughs> walk into a bar. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I know this is this story is just absolutely wild. Um, so Valignano was the visitor, you know, quote unquote, or the head Jesuit priest who was tasked with overseeing all the Jesuit missions in the Indies, which at that time meant East Africa, South, Southeast, and East Asia as well. Oh, so he's a big deal. Yeah, he was a pretty big deal. I literally wrote my notes, kind of a big deal. Nice. So that was perfect. <laughs> so Yasuke was most likely like some hired muscle or you know, more loosely maybe a bodyguard for the priest as priests themselves couldn't cause violence or even carry weapons. But they could outsource <laughs> yes. violence and weapons. Absolutely, they could. <laughs> That's a nice workaround there, priests. So, we're, and even, honestly, we, we're not sure if Yasuke was a freeman or even enslaved at this point in time. But most modern-day historians lean that he was free. And was in employment. Exactly. Okay. And that he was, like, actually employed. So, before we carry on with our narrative, I, I think it's important to give some context um, to the backstory of, like, what's going on in Japan at this time. Oh, good. I'm glad. Because it's, it's, it's nuts. So, the country had, by this point, had been plagued by civil war for over a century. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, the, it was, it's been over 100 years since the country's last, you know, strong centralized ruler, or shogun, was ousted from power. That's terrible. That's so long to be at civil war. Yeah. Japan was essentially ruled by glorified warlords called daimyo, uh -huh. who controlled samurai in their like localities. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were, I mean, again, glorified warlords, I think is a really appropriate term for them. Mm-hmm. So the system was very similar to that of feudalism in Western Europe uh, during the medieval period, actually. Okay. So, you know, you have, like, le local landlords, you know, or yeah. landholders that have, like, people underneath them. That are, like, paying dues to live on that land. Exactly. And working on the land. Yeah. Okay. And then from a military aspect, they have, you know, they're called to battle and serve that lord. That lord can sometimes, you know, serve other bigger lords or, like, you know, like in, in Western Europe, it would be a king, but they don't have kings here. So it's just kind of all just really fractured, to say yes. the least. Yes, yes, yes. Very decentralized. Exactly. So these daimyo previously, you know, like 100 years prior, used to answer to what was called the shogun. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like a king, but more of like a hereditary military dictator. Wow, that's so interesting. A yeah. hereditary military dictator? Yes. So kind of like a king. It, you know what it reminds me of? It actually is in the Iliad where all the kings, the Basileus. Yes. I don't actually know what the plural is for that. They... They um they answer to Agamemnon, who is the Enoch, who yes. is like the the he like I remember one professor called it like per, called him like a generalissimo. Yeah. So that's kind of it's very similar to that. A general of generals. Kind of exactly. That's really interesting. So, um, but the tides, you know, this has been going on back to like Japan, like hundred years of civil war. Tides have been changing as of late because one of the daimyo. Um, had dreams of a unified Japan. 
And oh. that guy was the, went by the name of Oda Nobunaga. And he had aspirations of uniting the entire country under his rule. Wow. That's yeah. a big aspiration. Yeah, very big. An interesting fact, he actually installed a shogun in the country's capital, Kyoto, in 1568, mm-hmm. only to depose him five years later in 1573. <laughs> so, like, there were, like, quote-unquote shoguns, uh-huh. but it was, like, a joke. They were... Kind of like puppet shoguns? They were puppet shoguns, okay. yeah. And this daimyo's fate would intertwine with that of Yosuke. Ooh. Yes. Speaking of which, after Yosuke had been in the country for about two years... Um, the priest Valignano was summoned to Kyoto because most likely he was planning on leaving and had to meet with Oda and request to depart Japan, you know, which was a customary practice in the years before passports. That's so interesting to think about. Yeah. Um, and this is where Oda Nobunaga and Yasuke actually met. Yeah. So according to a letter written 1581 by a Jesuit priest by the name of Luis Fros to another priest named Lorenzo Mexica, or Mexia, excuse me, Odo Nobunaga was fascinated by Osuke's mm-hmm. black skin. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's the only black person he had seen before. Most likely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, he had ordered... I'll get to that, though, in a second, actually. In fact, he ordered Yasuke to strip from the waist up and scrub his skin to prove that he was indeed black. Oh, my God, sir. (laughs) Yes. Once Oda realized that his skin was not just ink, Uh um, he was just absolutely fascinated by our protagonist. And what's interesting, and you pointed this out, is that while black folks in Japan were rare, they weren't actually unprecedented at this time. Uh Uh-huh. So there had been Africans serving as mercenaries as well as interpreters and entertainers, probably other craftsmen as well, that's been documented. And it's probably only a few hundred. So again, it was very rare, but but not completely unheard of. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, everyone at this time... Okay, I might be mistitling this time, but is this considered like the age of exploration? Yes. Yeah, I just feel like everyone and their mom is on a ship. Yes. Traveling to foreign lands. Exactly. It's during stuff. this century that the especially the Portuguese and the Spanish are really like exploring. Mm-hmm. They're going crazy. Right. Um, the people in Kyoto would have been surprised by Yosuke's foreignness, but very likely he probably wouldn't have had like the prejudices that contemporary Africans would face, you know, especially in the slave trade. Regardless, Oda Nobunaga threw a party for Yusuke, uh, who then entered into the service of Oda. <laughs> That's a really nice way to onboard your employee. I know, just throw them a party. Throw them a party. I expect that treatment. <laughs> I know, it's kind of weird because he was like, he was under this Jesuit priest, and then Oda Nobunaga is like, nope. You're working for me now. <laughs> Pretty much. I'm throwing you a party. We're best buds. And what's interesting too here is, I, I want to point this out, when I referred to Oda Nobunaga, Oda was ac- or Oda, excuse me, is actually the familial name, whilst Nobunaga is his given name. Okay, so they go in reverse. Yeah, so it's reverse. Just the more you know, guys. So according to the Chronicle of Lord Nobunaga, which is a 17th century book written by one of Nobunaga's followers, like decades later, it describes Yasuke as appearing to be around, you know, 26 or 27 years old at this time. 
Okay, also the Chronicle of Lord Nobunaga is a great title. It is, isn't it? So simple, so direct, but it sounds epic. I think, well, that's like the translation, of course. It was written in Japanese, but yeah. I love that. But it's pretty dope. Um, it's also notes that he was really jacked and he had a, you know, good demeanor to him, you know, whatever he meant by that. Maybe he had a nice smile. Yeah. Like he's friendly. He's approachable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They said he had like the strength of like 10 men. Oh my gosh. So he jacked. 26 or 27 too young. He's a young man. He's still pretty young at this point. Yasuke had also been described as very intelligent who most likely could speak Japanese fluently. And was a really skilled warrior to begin with. Oh my god. I was just telling you, I was speaking with a Japanese friend who was telling me I was expressing interest in the language. And she was like, no, dude, it's going to be too hard for you. (laughs) I took no offense to that. I was like, you're probably right. So that's really impressive Yeah. that he developed fluency because she was just explaining that it is a very complex language right that english for example is much more utilitarian and direct Mm -hmm. which she appreciated but japanese there's a bunch of different ways to say the same thing right that's a really good point also it's interesting too that he like chinese at this point was like the lingua franca of like of east asia okay and he still just chose to know japanese just to be really enmeshed with the culture yes I don't think maybe I, I should rephrase that. I don't think he chose it necessarily. It might have been the Jesuit priest. Okay. Um, whose name I've like literally already forgotten. Um, <laughs> the side character. He is a side character. He's not important anymore. Um, but he learned it. But yeah, he learned it. Mm-hmm. Either out of like this is your job, so you got to pick up this language, or just by being there. He exactly. It up. Mm-hmm. So very quickly. You know, after he went into the service of Lord Nobunaga, mm-hmm. uh, he was promoted to a pretty high position within Oda's entourage, you know, being one of the personal bodyguards for the daimyo himself. Wow. Yeah, this elite guard consisted of only like 30 to 50 warriors and was a very prestigious position. Kind of like the gold cloaks in Game of Thrones? Yes. Mm-hmm. See, I brought it's it. not the gold cloaks. They're it's... not the gold cloaks? Never mind. <laughs> I was so proud of myself. Or is it the gold? I can't remember if the gold cloaks are the, the police of like the city or... Oh. King's Guard. The King's Guard. That's what I was thinking yeah, of. Yeah, you're thinking of the King's Guard. Darn it. I messed up my own reference. I know. That was that was pretty bad, babe. Okay. But anyway, basically... Anyways. He, he was like the King's Guard. He was... Yeah. <laughs> essentially, he was like the King's Guard. Very yes. cool. So... And given that he was a competent warrior um, and quite the sight behold, he was actually really popular to the people in Kyoto. I'm sure. So by this time, he was a fully-fledged samurai and you know, quite the prolific one at that. He accompanied Oda Nobunaga on his campaign against a rival clan and presumably even saw combat. We know nothing about his involvement in the battle, um, but it's it's like a fair estimate. Mm-hmm. You know, but unfortunately, again, there's just very little documentation, and so we can't say anything for certain, which is so annoying. Yeah. It's so annoying. And most, you know, even with being such an elite warrior and being close to power, most people's lives in history aren't documented. That's something I think about a lot. Like a quote unquote common person. We don't know so much about the way people lived and things like that. He's a good example. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. And what's really unfortunate is Yasuke's time as a samurai would be very (gasps) short-lived. Why? 
I'll tell you right now. On June 21st, 1582, one of Oda Nobunaga's generals, Akechi Mitsushidi, rebelled against him and sieged the Honoji Temple in Kyoto where Oda was taking refuge. Uh-oh. So this coup d'etat was completely out of left field and no one saw it coming. In fact, like to this day, we don't know the reason why he did it. There's a bunch of speculation, but none of them have ever none of them like hold a, like complete weight on their own. Yes. It could have been a combination of a few things, but again, it's all just suspect. Wow, that's a big move to make. Yeah. And it's it's such a big part of Japanese um, history. It's called the it's even called the Hanoji incident. Wow. Yeah. And, and they don't know and they still don't know the motives behind it no. even though it's a large part of their history. Exactly. Fascinating. So and it just unfortunately for Oda Nobunaga, it came at just the most inopportune time because a vast majority of his troops were spread over Japan, capitalizing on the weakness of the other daimyos who had not submitted to him. Mm-hmm. So what's even stranger, again, is like not only do we not know why Akechi Mitsushidi decided to betray his lord, there was actually, this is a v- like an event very, very similar to this happened like a few decades prior. Really? Yeah. Like, almost the exact same circumstance. But different players, obviously. Different players and everything, yeah. But very similar circumstance. It's very strange. So, regardless of the reason why Akechi Mitsushidi decided to, you know, be not a nice person. (laughs) Be not chill. (laughs) Be super not chill. Odu Nobunaga had dozens of bodyguards and soldiers loyal to him within the compound. And, you know, Akechi Mitsushidi had, like, 13,000 troops. Oh, wow. So, the... Yeah, because, you know, like, I I also have to... Again, not only was this out of left field, but Odu Nobunaga was deep within his, like, territory. His own territory. Mm -hmm, So, like, mm -hmm. he thought he was safe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but this was just really bad. Really bad. It was not going to end well. So Yasuke, along with a few dozen other loyal warriors, fought bravely and killed quite a few of the soldiers. But, you know, unfortunately, it was all for naught in the end. Mm, that's so sad. I know. And I have to issue a trigger warning here that there, we're going to be talking about suicide for the next, like, 30 to 60 seconds. Okay. So Oru Nobunaga, at this point, decided to commit seppuku instead of getting captured and most likely, you know, tortured and killed by Akechi Mitsushidi. So if you don't know what seppuku is, it's essentially a ritualistic suicide where a person stabs himself in the gut, dragging the blade across the abdomen while a third party chops off the person's head. Mm-hmm. Oda Nobunaga's last wish was for Yasuke to escape and bring his head to his son. Oh. And it's important for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Number one, it doesn't. This doesn't allow the invading general the satisfaction of possessing his head, mm-hmm. which is like such a sign of dominance, right? right exactly. Yeah. And and two, like more importantly, the head could be used as a source of legitimacy. And since uh, Akechi Mitsushidi didn't have it, then his entire act, his entire coup d'état, is viewed as nothing but treason. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's super interesting. And the fact that Oda Nobunaga told Yasuke mm-hmm. to bring the head to his son is a really, really big sign of respect. I was thinking he must trust him so much yeah. to do that. 
because that sounds like a, like it has very big consequences. It's not even just for sentimental purposes of like right. being able to have a burial. It's like you said, a sign of legitimacy. Exactly. And with Oda, Oda Nobunaga's head and toe, um, Yasuke actually fled to his son, Oda Nobutada. Mm-hmm. So very similar names, I know. And was briefly under his command, but that didn't last long, either like a day or maybe two. What? Yeah, and unfortunately, Nobutada met the same fate as his father. Oh, that's so sad. I know. And Yasuke's there with both of them. Exactly. In just a few days' time. Maybe even, it possibly could have been even the same day. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really bad. But at this point, most likely really badly injured after fighting his way through a full-blown coup d'etat, Yasuke was finally captured by Akechi Mitsushiri. No! I know. Presumably, since he wanted to remain on the good side of the Jesuit priests, um, he apparently let Yasuke go free, but stripped him of his rank of samurai. In fact, the last thing that we know of Yasuke was for certain is that he was delivered to the Jesuit priests. That's so interesting. Really interesting. Like, even at, like, that's just so weird to me. Like, he must have been loved or really valued by those Jesuits for them to still care about his life when he's no longer working for them. Exactly. I know. I just... I'm like, this is a really strange tale and that, like, things don't necessarily make a ton of sense. Yeah, because you would think upon capturing him, they would definitely kill him. Right. But really interesting. But also kind of sad that he stripped him of his samurai title. Yeah. Because it seems like he was a good samurai. I think so. And I think it's because, like, he didn't commit seppuku um, and said, like, surrendered. But, I mean, he, he was, like, completely battered and bruised at this time and outnumbered by like literally like over you know 10,000 to 13 or something 13,000 to 13 I truly can't even imagine <laughs> yeah. those numbers yeah like a thousand to one yeah like, I'd be like kind okay, of insane I don't I don't get paid enough for this <laughs> but revenge would come quickly though back to the narrative <gasps> yes tell me one of Oda Nobunaga's loyal generals Toyota I want to say Toyota every time I see his name. Toyotimi Hideyoshi defeated Mitsushiri at the Battle of Yamazaki on July 2nd, 1582, only a couple weeks after Nobunaga's death. Oh, wow. That's a quick turnaround yeah, time. Very, very quick. A couple weeks later, guess what? You get yours. Yeah. And yeah, Mitsushiri actually was killed by, I think, bandits when fleeing the battlefield. Oh. So like very... It's very poetic justice. Yes. So Hideyoshi would ultimately actually unite the country in 1590 and become known as Japan's great unifier, concluding the legacy started by Oda Nobunaga. Oh my gosh. So kind of like, you know. The goal was still met, just not by the person who had had the original plan. Yes. But it was still carried out. And well over a century of like civil war came to an end. Oh, that's that's a good... um, end of the story right there right. like oh you over half a century that's insane i still and some historians like speculate that yasuke fought on the side of hideyoshi but we just aren't sure oh it's just speculation and again like guys at, at this point it's yasuke just completely disappears from the historical narrative what the heck i know 
And a hypothesis of what became of him ranged from him rejoining the Jesuit missionary work to becoming a pirate. And literally, like, everything in between. I like the idea of him being a pirate. I like that one, too. That one's really dope. Because at such a young age, like you said, 27, 28, he's already lived quite an adventurous life, I would say. And he has insane skills in terms of fighting, he speaks multiple languages. He's obviously a very good relationship builder. I just think he'd make a great pirate. I think so too. Yeah. I really do. (laughs) And, you know, something that I want to point out here, like almost everything that I've said up until this point Mm -hmm. happened between the years 1579 and 1582. So Yasuke is only present in the historical narrative for three years. That's it. It's like a little blip. It's a blip. And he made such an impact. Yes. In just such a short amount of time. So, and again, despite this, his impact on Japanese history and even today's like pop culture is pretty significant. Yes. So there have been numerous Japanese period play, or pieces on him. What? Yeah. Like, of course, we wouldn't know them. They're... There were Japan, but like in Japan, but like he's also been included in also quite a few video games. And there's even a Netflix anime show called Yasuke that is loosely based on him. We have to watch very that. loosely based on him. <laughs> yeah, with such little documentation right. and evidence, I'm sure they took lots well, of liberties there. Well, and it's like fantastical as well. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds so fun though. But yeah, I think it starts with on that day on the, the coup d'etat and <gasps> then goes forward from what I read about it. That's really cool. So I think I'm going to watch that definitely. We should definitely do it. Okay, so also even apparently back in 2017, a film about his life was being developed but production unfortunately stopped in 2020 mm. because the actor who would have played him was Chadwick Boseman. Are you serious? Dead serious. Oh my god. No, no pun intended. That's so sad. Yeah. He would have done such a great job. Yeah, and for the weirdos who don't know, like Chadwick Boseman sadly died of colon cancer in 2020. Yes, he's the Black Panther. Yes, he's best known as playing the Black Panther. Mm-hmm. So... That, Stephanie and my dear weirdos, is the story of Yasuke, the Black Samurai. That is so cool. And I, I'm pretty sure we maybe even would have shared this on our Instagram stories a while ago. Because I remember seeing an artist created like a commemorative statue of yes. the Black Samurai. But I didn't know his story at all. Yeah, it's wild. And if you don't already, follow us on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you. At History for Weirdos. That's usually my job saying that, so I appreciate you saying it. Of course. Well, you did the heavy lifting of sharing this awesome story with us now. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Tell us your sources, my love. It's just about to do it. Okay. We have, first off, the Smithsonian Magazine, Time Magazine, the BBC, All That Is Interesting, USA Today, Encyclopedia Britannica, and Wikipedia. And I think it's really funny because I use so many sources, but it's such a short episode. I was thinking that, I'm like, and those are like the big reputable sources too, and there's just such little information on Yasuke. Yeah, it's really sad, but, um, you know. I mean, you don't even, we don't even know his birth name. No, we don't, we think Yasuf, we think, because he, most likely from Mozambique. That's really weird. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very good quintessential weirdo episode. Thank you so much for sharing the story. I think it would be really cool if like a historian or even like um gosh 
the folks that do genealogy really yeah. intensely would try to find him. I'm sure there's some other clue of him in history. Oh, yeah. Or a there descendant. There has to be. Yeah. That would be a very cool... Any, if anyone here is getting like their PhD in some sort of history thing, that would be a very cool <laughs> research project right there. I think it would. I think it would. There's your thesis. Well, once again, Andrew, thank you so much for sharing the story of Yasuke. Weirdos, thank you so much for listening to another episode. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps the podcast continue to grow. And until next time, weirdos. Adios. Adios.